Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. If my mic sounds a little different right now, it's because I am in Manchester and I didn't have time to record before I left London, so I'm just using the computer and maybe no one will notice and that means I spent a lot of money on a microphone I didn't need. But this interview this week, it's with another PhD person, so I seem to know a lot of a lot of PhDs at this point, or I know two at least, and I've interviewed both of them. But it's exciting to talk to people who are pursuing academics. And in this case, the guest really talks about that pursuit, but then what's next as well. And I'm kind of starting to be intrigued by people who are on the verge of something next, something that's happening soon and for them. And so it's it's been fun to talk to them because I feel like we're starting to get into a time of change for a lot of people. At least that's what I'm observing. I have a couple of friends who've just started new jobs, a couple of friends who are looking for jobs. People I'm mentoring are getting out there for some jobs. I'm, I'm going to sign up for a mentor myself pretty soon at work too. And I think what I was thinking about earlier, what I was going to say on this is just how if you need help or you need something, ask for it. If you have questions, you're thinking about a new career, you're thinking about some other life change or just something small, ask. There are people in your network, either your friend circle or in your professional network or maybe an activity network who want to help. And I have found in the last year that's been so helpful to me. And I'm doing this um, school right now and have really formed some good relationships with a couple people. But with them too, it just comes down to being vulnerable and asking and also letting them be vulnerable and letting them tell you and ask you what they need and I've really just seen the value in that over time and I didn't before but as I've grown older I've found that I have more confidence when I kind of show my vulnerability and show that I don't know certain things and I'm not sure what to do so I don't know maybe someone needs to hear that this week and that's that's what I'm telling you but enjoy this chat with Reva Riley And at the top, I talk about how we met, so I'm trying not to repeat content from this part of the podcast to the little mini intro I do when I start to interview guests. That's maybe a format change that we're looking at here. Uh, We've got episode 50 coming up pretty soon, so I'm excited because it's been a year since I've done, I started this podcast. So if you're a brand new listener, thanks for being here and definitely check out all the episodes. And if you've been here the whole time, thank you so much. And anyone in between, thank you too. If you can follow, subscribe, whatever, on any platform, if you can please write reviews for me on Good Pods or on Apple, that would be awesome. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and stay well. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. All right, this week I have a guest that I actually met in London when I first moved here before the initial lockdowns. And she is American, but actually moved back to America. So we're now talking from London and and the US basically. 
And so this is Reva Riley, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Maryland. How's it going? Hey, not so bad. How about you? Good, good. So where are you today? You're... I am. So I'm in my apartment uh, in College Park, Maryland. The University of Maryland is where I work. So I'm like, uh, you know, without traffic, like 25, 30 minute drive from the heart of D.C. Nice. That's cool. That's a cool area to be in. And what's funny is we didn't meet just so people don't think I'm doing some postdoctoral research because <laughs> this might be the first time I've ever said that that phrase. It's, it's not a yeah. common one. <laughs> no, we met doing comedy, but but you ended up you were where were you in London when we met? What school? So we met at Queen Mary University. I was doing uh, my first postdoctoral position there. I've been in England for a long time, but when we met, I was in East London Queen Mary University. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And so, I mean, first of all, just the pursuit of higher education, not only to the doctoral level, but now postdoctoral. Maybe talk through how you got on that whole path. Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know, because I remember being in high school and, you know, they were like, oh, STEM, that's good. You'll get a job if you study STEM. And they're like, what are, what are your options, you know, if you're good at math and science? Well, you can be a doctor or something medical, or you can be an engineer. And that was sort of the options I grew up with. My uh, my mother wanted me to be a doctor. That was kind of the plan. And then I, I went to college and suddenly you realize that there's this whole other world you've never even heard of. And I've always loved animals and, and fish, particularly when I was a little kid. I tell the story a lot, but it is more or less true. I, I really wanted a puppy. I, I really wanted one. I my parents. They didn't want the work of a dog. They got me a fish mm. tank instead. <laughs> Jokes on them. So I got to college <laughs> and I had all these opportunities to kind of do my own little projects. You know, I was lucky I went to college and had funding for that kind of thing. So you know, the more I, I was doing these projects, the more I realized that, like, wow, like all this intellectual freedom. I mean, a career, academia is a really dumb career choice for a lot of reasons, but they, you do get <laughs> this massive just ability to just think about the world and, and, and try to try to figure it out for yourself, which I think is a very kind of rare and precious thing. Um, so I it was a funny it was a funny thing as well. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to grad school. I took the MCAT. You know, I was like very much not sure what I was going to do. My poor parents were like, oh, God, I hope this fish thing passes and she just gets a normal life because I don't know what we're going to do. I decided to take a gap year got a research assistant position in St. Andrews, Scotland, actually. Oh. And there's also a St. Andrews in South Carolina, right? <laughs> so when I'm considering this position, I'm like, well, you know, South Carolina is going to be a little rough, but, you know, all right. And then I realized it was in Scotland and it became a oh lot more. Gosh. So that was good fun. And uh, I loved my lab there. I decided to go for the PhD. I, I applied for the scholarship, the this fellowship, the, the Marshall Scholarship to go there. I did not get it. I was really, really, did you know, inconsolable. And my, my college fellowship advisor was like, all right, listen, we know you're upset, but like, just apply for this other thing. Like, just, just don't worry about it. Like, just apply for it. And I was like, whatever. And yeah. I applied and I got that. And that was to do a PhD at Cambridge in England. And I like, didn't even pay that much attention to it because my life was in so much turmoil. I didn't even know what was going to happen. So weirdly, that's when I got it. So then I ended up going to Cambridge where I had some, some old friends and colleagues from my time in Scotland and uh, ended up doing a PhD there. <laughs> Wow. That's really cool. And so when you got, I guess, that rejection, though, and not getting that, I mean, did it was it hard, not only because you wanted it, but because was it kind of like, did you feel like it was telling you something about your work up to that point? Or I've gotten rejected for so many things in so many <laughs> different ways. that I don't think any one rejection. <laughs> you know, but... So many ways. I mean, I've been rejected. Email, text message. Oh, God, where do you even start? 
So I don't think I, I would be as as phased by that. But uh, mm-hmm. I was younger, more naive then than I, than I am now. And yeah, it was it was tough. I really loved my lab in Scotland. I was like, well, you know, I know that doing a PhD is kind of impractical. I mean, it is funded. Science PhDs are generally funded, but it's still, you know, earning potential is it does not justify the time investment. You have to really, mm-hmm. really love it. But I loved my lab group there, and I was convinced I wanted to stay there. And it was a really prestigious scholarship, so it also seemed like it would justify it. You know, like, okay, like this is an impractical thing I'm doing, but if I get this prestigious scholarship, then then it's okay. You know, it's, it, yeah. you know, like, so that was, that was really rough. And, and my parents, they didn't, you know, they didn't mean to not be supportive, but they really did not understand what I was doing or why. And mm-hmm. had that effect, basically. So, yeah, that, that was really, that was really rough. And even in the interview, the interview did not go great. You know, mm. like I, I really care very deeply about animal welfare and, you know, fish get a really bad rap. And I, I talk about fish welfare a lot. And one of my interviewers asked me about fish welfare in the context of Finland giving fish human rights. Mm. And I was like, uh, oh, you mean, you mean dolphins? She's like, yeah, yeah. And then once your interviewers don't know that fish and dolphins are different. Yeah, yeah. They probably aren't going to understand your work enough to care about it. Right. That's interesting. Because that's something, I mean, I think I actually do know that. and But I think it's something like I might say that I'm not interviewing an academic for their future and for a doctoral position, right? So who cares if I know what a dolphin is or a fish is? But when they're judging your, your work and if they're going to have you on board, then that's a bit tough. Yeah. Like it's, I think you really, without that fundamental knowledge, there's no way to judge my work, if, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, that was a long time ago now. That was eight years ago. Okay. Yeah. So as far as your doctoral work, this week that we're recording this, my friend is on who's a neuroscientist, but we didn't really talk about her process of getting her doctorate and everything. So can you talk a little bit about that and just kind of what that process was in your research you did and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was very lucky as an undergrad I love the tropics. I love field work. I wrote a grant to go study this particular species of fish in the Amazon rainforest. And Whoa. a half hour before it was due, I realized that the fish I was writing the grant about didn't live in the area that I was going to. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, I'm like 20 or 21 years old. It's too late. I decided to just submit it anyway and see what happens. And I got it. So oh, wow. I basically had the effect of sending me to the Amazon rainforest without a plan. Like I knew I was going to study fish, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And when I was there, I was just, it was, I was like the most fun summer in the universe. I was running around in these jungle streams. There was peril. It was fascination. It was wonderful. I've been keeping fish for years and I caught uh, a quarry catfish. Actually, there's a good friend of mine who, who who I met at the station. He caught the first one. So we're actually collaborating on a different project now. So we go way back. And quarry catfish are fish that I had kept in my fish tanks for years. And I was a kid and I loved them so much. They're so charming. They really buff the catfish stereotypes, you know. And anyway, I decided to research them because why not? And I discovered this social behavior, this novel sort of tactile interaction behavior where they kind of snuggle to talk to each other. Mm. In, the, in the literature, we termed it nudging. I did that later in my PhD. So that's what I did my PhD on. And I had that idea in mind when I applied for the fellowship I ultimately got that funded my PhD. And in, in that respect, I think my PhD was not totally unusual. A lot of people are in a similar position, but you also see, have a lot of people that start PhDs basically in systems and on projects that are already in place, whereas I kind of went mm-hmm. in with my own one. And so to be honest, it was, I think this is, I think I'm just going to come off as bitter right off the bat. I think if I were a man instead of a woman, I'd have had an mm-hmm. easier time. 
I had a lot of people like even now, like, you know, people that will just try to argue with me about what I do. And I had to really like, you know, even with like the administration at my university is Cambridge, right? Cambridge is supposed to be this great university and they wouldn't set the tanks up like I wanted them to, like things like that. Yeah. So it took me two whole years to get my, my lab up and running, to get the fish settled. My, my speech supervisor, he was supportive, but you know, he's had a million students and a million postdocs and I was not even close to the top of his priority list. And that, that was very frustrating. Once the fish were all set up, then it became this super kind of engaging, kind of fun time of like, all right, let's do these pilot experiments. Let's see what works. You know, my research is really different than your sort of classic research in that I call it a lab, but it's a room full of fish tanks. And I have a paper that's published. And the way we did it is we put fish in a tank and we just walked at them to scare them. And then we saw what they did. <laughs> it was really good fun. I got to like, you know, mentor research undergraduates, you know, in the course of that. And I really, really enjoyed that. I had f- fantastic undergrads during that time. And I have great undergrads now. So I've been really lucky in terms of like being able to, to work with, with younger, more junior students who were really spectacular. And that... Then it becomes this really, so you do this experiment, you figure out what works, you have a research question, you know, and then you start this process of publishing and you're trying to publish papers while writing up a dissertation. And it's all very like ritualistic, you know, the process, you know, I, mm-hmm. I had to produce this dissertation. No one will ever read it. Yeah. Not, the pu- papers I publish from it will, you know, like they'll affect my career, but the dissertation itself, not so much. but the actual, and you know, I could, anyone could complain about their PhD a lot. There's a tremendous amount of freedom in it. You know, just in terms of not only how you spend your time, but how you arrange your day, you know, what you think about all of that, that in many ways is a great privilege. Yeah, and that sounds like pretty cool. And just the fact that you kind of come up with what you're going to research. And so if if I were to ask you, what's the impact of this research, something that I can understand or take away, what is it? I have various spiels to answer that question. They're all context dependent. If... I'm speaking to someone who doesn't really care about fish or wildlife particularly. I, I'll say something like, well, you know, the fish brain looks very different from a human brain, right? Mm-hmm. It looks a lot simpler. And that's why for so long people thought fish were stupid. For example, there's mm-hmm. an idea that fish only have a three to five second memory. That's obviously, yeah. right? Now that yeah. is some hot bullshit. Can I swear on this? Yeah, you can. I just have Great. an explicit tag. It's fine. <laughs> but you, you, you can just edit no, that. No, no, you're yeah. fine. That's hot nonsense. Um, <laughs> and... But they did this experiment with goldfish where they're like, let's see how long their memory actually is. And they ran out of funding and they'd already remember for three months. Fish have spectacular memories. You can train fish to do things and they can engage in some really complex behaviors. You know, all different kinds hmm. of fish can do all these different kinds of things, even though their brain is so different from ours. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So if they can accomplish yeah. the same kind of cognitive and social complexity. I mean, certainly not as humans, but like as lizards or as even to some extent, some mammals, if they can do that, you know, there must be some, there's aspects of the, neuro, like the, you know, the brain and there's aspects of neuroscience that we certainly don't understand. So what my research does is it, it takes this fish that accomplishes this task of communication in this totally different way, you know, via yeah. these tactile interactions. And by understanding how that happens, we can imagine how that could have huge effects on various things that can affect humans down the line. Like even like my fish are really intensely social and yet the neurological basis for their sociality is potentially very different from ours. And if we understood this kind of alternate pathway to social behavior, that might be useful for, for treating certain psychological disorders in humans. We're a long, 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 long way away from that, 
But yeah. that's the kind of big picture that the more we understand about this alternate reality of, of cognition and sociality, yeah. the more we might be able to apply what we understand to ourselves in a more like proximate sort of why is this useful? What does it tell us? Well, we know that you know, evolution, we think about evolution as being this like, you know, doggy dog world, right? Mm-hmm. Survival of the fittest, you know, who can, who can murder who the fastest. And a lot of the times <laughs> that's what it is. However, we have so many examples, including humans, cases where, you know, we're not really doggy dog at all. We are intensely collaborative, intensely social humans. I mean, we literally need other humans to live. I think humans are one of, maybe the only or one of the only species that requires social support to give birth because of our stupid bipedal pelvises, but that's a different issue. So this evolution of social behavior is really interesting. How did it happen? What are the mechanisms underlying how it happened? Maybe that's not, doesn't have like clinical significance, but I think, you know, as humans, we're very curious about how we came to be, right? Like, why are we like this? How did it happen? And I think these fish, by looking at a system that's much simpler than us, but does some similar things, will give us some really fundamental insight about, you know, how we evolved. Like, how did it happen? Yeah. Something that I wouldn't think of on my own, this kind of thing. So it's pretty cool. So now I guess now you're still researching with the the catfish or? Yes, right. Yes. So how long does your current project take or you don't know? It just depends on what happens. Yeah. So I have a two year fellowship. I'm coming to the end of the first year. And I don't know what's going to happen after that, which is why academia is a dumb career. I love what I do. I love teaching. I'm very good at teaching. I, I love the fish I study. But, you know, the academic job market has been a shit show for a very long time. I have made this conscious decision that I don't want to give up my life for it. Like, I don't want to right. be chasing postdoc positions, you know, for the rest of my life. Yeah, because you basically end up applying for fellowship after fellowship after fellowship. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I'm even privileged in the sense that my fellowship allows me to do my own work. You know, I'm not someone's employee. It's what I was doing in London. I am, um, you know, it's, it's my own research. It's my own stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm going to go on the academic job market this cycle. I feel like I'm a really iffy candidate in terms of I'm still, you know, my system is still very new. I'll have a lot of published papers that come out kind of like next spring, I think, like just looking at timings of when I think things will happen. So I'm going to go, I'm going in the academic job market this cycle, and then I'm going to give it one more stab next cycle if I don't find uh, a professorship, basically. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to have a real hard long think about my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it does sound like a tough, tough career just because it's only stable for that little amount of time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like, I mean, I'm also... You know, like not having like a partner in a family right now. I'm very mobile at least, you know. Yeah. But people who do have partners, I mean, you can't really drag, you know, a partner and certainly not kids around for years mm-hmm. and years and years. So you see that a lot with people who are, could be really promising scientists, but they're like, no, you know, I can't go to rural Nebraska for three years. Just yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely... Trixie, I think you really have to love what you're doing to have it make any sense. So then as far as with animal welfare, you just, you said that was really important to you and you're doing research with animals. So how has, how have those two things intersected for you? Yeah, this is very range. So I actually, yeah, I, I care very, very much about the fish I study. I want the fish I study to be lucky for having to come live with me, which is not typical of animal research. Um, 
I, 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 I turned down research opportunities as an undergrad and even a PhD student because I just refused to, to hurt animals. And it's very extreme. It's not popular amongst my colleagues. I don't talk about it very much in that context. At the moment, it's my fish, the fish I study. They're these little, you know, like two to three yeah. inches max. So there's little fish. They're really common in aquariums. So I actually did my PhD on fish we got from the local pet store. Now I have wild-caught fish, but the fish for my PhD are alive and well. They, they were adopted by my lab mates and they're still young. The record for the species I study is 34 years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just nuts. I think 10 to 15 is more common. So yeah. if, you know, they're, they're treated well in good, good conditions, they, they live as long as a dog or a cat. So in, in the fish that I'm studying now, like there is a certain amount of inevitable stress that you have to put animals through when you study them. You know, we have to film them in certain tanks because so my fish, they're, they're these little catfish, they, they move along the bottom. We film them from above. And we have to film them in tanks without without a lot of stuff that obscures the view of the camera. So I have mm-hmm. to move them to those tanks and sort of think about what I think is ethical, and then I make peace with it. So in the case of netting, it's a minimal stress. It's quick. They recover from it. I, I can make peace with that, but I, I'm not going to... Not going to escalate too much beyond that. So it's, it's 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 a really kind of strange, odd one. I think part of how I make my own piece of it is that I know that the fish will have good lives. I know that like even when I'm done with them, if I can't take care of them anymore, I will make sure that they go to a good home. And uh, there's a lot of really passionate aquarists. One of my favorite online spaces is Planet Catfish, the online forum for ornamental catfish enthusiasts. <laughs> It's one of the most wholesome places ever. There's protocols I use right now that I started doing because they were suggested to me by just, you know, not scientists, just people who love these fish and have had them and know about them more than even scientists do sometimes. So that's kind of how I I make make my peace with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, well, and then there's the whole idea just in what we purchase, we can look and see if animals were... Yeah. Not even harmed, but even used. I mean, I can't imagine just that it's pleasant for animals even to be used for cosmetics, much less harmed or not. I just can't imagine that they enjoy this for any reason. And so, you know, there's things like that we can do, but. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, yeah, okay. I was raised vegetarian, which helps a lot and mm. not quite vegan yet. I really should be, but you know, the way that we identify with the things we're used to. I understand why people who vaguely think they should be vegetarian don't don't do it. I understand that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's a big change, and and then vegan is even a bigger change. And I think there's different reasons people do it for health or for animals in the environment or just for yeah. other things. But I I can say I try to have vegan days, but I'm not good yeah. about it. You know, and that's. Ex- Kind of what I do. Yeah, where I like, I don't keep milk in the house or eggs in the house, but I'm sticking with the vegetarianism because I've been doing that my whole life. But I'll definitely have non-vegan things if I'm out and about, sometimes just to make life easier sometimes because I really like ice cream. And, (laughs) you know, it's one of these things where you take a good hard look at yourself in the mirror every day and just hope that, (laughs) Yeah, what you did was okay. (laughs) Exactly. So do you have any other animals that you really like other than fish that I do? Yes, I am. Um, so fish, I think I could get really, really enthusiastic about almost any animal and any animal that I'm given care of. I think I'm just going to love very much. Like I recently came into possession of the family turtle. I'm going to show her to you. 
here she is. Yeah. I never cared much. I never thought much about turtles until I took her back in August. And now I would die for her. And I mean, (laughs) personal love for this specific turtle aside, like turtles are just wild. Like you may have heard this. Like turtles don't live in their shells. Turtles are their shells. Like their spines are fused to their shell. Like the shell is, I know. Right, and no one told us this. Like I remember. No, I always thought they could come out of it. If well, literally come out of their shell. Literally, literally. And I remember this book, and I used to love it. It was oh man, so long ago. I forget the author, but it was like Franklin the Turtle. And there's this thing where he comes out of a shell, and then he's just like this naked turtle. And I'm like, they lied to us. Franklin (laughs) lied to us. Anyway, that's this is recent revelations with the turtle. So I'm really into turtles now. I just think they're spectacular and just. The resiliency of turtles, like, oh my God, it's so hard for turtles to make a living and they do it, you know? So I've learned a lot about turtles recently. <laughs> I actually got, this is going to be weird, but whatever, people are can be used to it. <laughs> like I did this, whatever, this reading and I got one of my spirit animal thing was like a turtle. And the way the turtle was described in this context though, was that they'll be out when they want to see people and you know, interact and make a difference. But then they'll also, they need someplace to go where they feel safe. And I was like, oh, that kind of is me because I've, I'm this introvert who appears to be an extrovert. Yes, I identify with that very much as well. Yeah. And I always thought I was an extrovert, but then I I found about 10 years ago, someone pointed out that because my scores on the Myers-Briggs and all these things were never like purely one or the other. And they yeah. said, well, yeah, because you're an introvert who... And my mom's like, why well, could I told you that like, <laughs> when you were a kid, you would sit in your room by yourself and then you come out and talk and then you go back. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm kind of a turtle just so you know. I, I, I totally get it. Yeah. I think I'm also like that. I, I also call myself an introvert who like presents as an extrovert. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's when we're out of our shells. Yeah. And they do. So my turtle, so this is not my fault. I just want the record to reflect that I did not do this. The turtle, <laughs> The turtle is obese. And she came to me that way. I think she's been obese for a while. I didn't know they could be obese. Me neither. I didn't know that was a potential problem. You know, I'm I'm an adult zoologist and I'm still learning things like that. And so what ways well, you can know that they're obese is that they can't fit into their own shell. And for a while, I'm like, she's just really confident. You know, she just doesn't feel the need to go in her shell. But it's yeah. been almost a year and I haven't seen her all the way in her shell. So <laughs> I don't think she can fit. Oh, my gosh. That's so I had no idea. About I know this. she can get her head in all the way. But then her legs are sticking out like not all the way, but like a little. <laughs> She's very cute. Like I was like, I'm going to whip this turtle into shape. I have not done that at all. <laughs> She can get her own Peloton. <laughs> exactly. She can do laps. She lives in a big tank. She's fine. Oh my gosh. That's so nuts. <laughs> so, so and besides all this work you're doing and ongoing research, you also are, well, I mentioned that we met at comedy, but besides comedy, which we've talked a lot about comedy on this podcast, to be honest. So you're also a writer and you've done, you're actually a published writer. So how did you decide to, go from someone who's like, oh, I like to write to actually pursuing that? Probably the real answer to that is like adolescent delusions. <laughs> but I've always, <laughs> I've always like written fiction for fun. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Like, like since, you know, gosh, like literally like 10, 11. And I wrote this, and in retrospect, like insanely, impo- like insane, appallingly bad fantasy novel when I was in high school. 
And I was like, I'm going to publish it. It's going to be great. And I you know, read about how you do it. I, you know, send queries to agents and they were all like, no, thank you, child. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, that, was, that was, and then you, you kind of get to this point where like fiction writing, not unlike science, is something that I think, you know, I do. And I think generally should be done because you love to do it and not because you expect anything tangible to come from mm-hmm. it. So I, I clearly like liked it enough and still really, you know, love that power to tell a story. I used to think of it like becoming the god of your own little universe. And now as I get kind of like older and more world weary, it's just a way to try to make sense of the insanity of it all. But I did take some creative writing classes in college. I did an English minor. You know, creative writing classes in college, I was always the only scientist in them. So I almost like didn't know how to talk to the English majors. Like that's kind of a joke, but not entirely. <laughs> Sometimes I would make a joke that I thought was really funny. And I mean literal crickets once. They didn't yeah. to get it at all. And I, I could tell because we'd write these short stories in these classes and we'd workshop them and we'd do like two or three a class. And I could always tell which one the class would like the best because it was the one I liked the least, you know. Hmm. So I thought a lot about like, who, who am I writing for in an ideal world and, and what am I trying to convey? You know, and that was really useful even just for that exercise. So yeah, after after that, I didn't really publish anything formally at all in college. I did uh, work on this little novel that I, I actually... I, I got was through the Twitter thing. So my, my best friend from high school is also really into fiction writing. That's part of how we bonded when we were when we were young. And she was like, Reva, there's this Twitter pitch contest. I think we have to get a Twitter account for it. That's why I got a Twitter account. And then a small publisher, you know, you tweet this like, you know, tweet link pitch for your book and a small publisher uh, picked up mine. But it had been rejected several times at that point. So then I published that under a pseudonym because it was about scientists and I didn't want people to think it was about me, you know. And then after that, I decided to focus more on short fiction because you could kind of in terms of like you know submitting to publishers and stuff and getting feedback more bang for your buck so i've published some some short stories and and flash fiction in the in the past few years and then i have a novella coming out it'll be in 2022 so the editor and i are just finishing edits on that now wow that's exciting so with the the book the first one under the pseudonym did did it sell like how did it go i mean not really it was this really tiny publisher and even i understood that it was mostly going to be about working with an editor and getting that sort of professional attention for the first time it mm-hmm. sold a little bit like i think it was amazon's women adventure category it like i think once broke the top 100 or something like it didn't That's really cool though it, yeah it didn't really I, I i i didn't make any appreciable amount of money off it or anything yeah um, yeah but it did like kind of make the rounds like a little bit like it, you know, it was good, a really good experience. The publisher eventually like five years or something after they, uh, they, it was a really new publisher then. And it was this indie publisher and it was going well in the beginning. So they, we actually, it was just an ebook, but then they did print some, like they, they did like a, like a, like a, some oh, printing wow. copies. But then I think the, it just, the economics of it didn't make sense to them and they, they ended up folding. So yeah, that was a, uh, very good experience, but not, not, you know, not like a humongous success or anything. And then how has that informed what you're doing now though, with your editor? Did that help you kind of just with lessons learned and stuff you carried forward or is it so different between editors? Between editors varies. I think it did help me in terms of just like improving my writing because you write and you're just writing for yourself and then you have to at some point go back and think about how readers interpret it. Cause obviously they're not, they don't know everything that you know and all of that. So I thought that was very helpful for just putting myself in the reader's perspective more and even just thinking about how characters came off. So I thought it really improved my writing. And also it was good. Like in that, like I've been lucky all the editors I've worked with have been, have been really 
just respectful and really great. I've really enjoyed working with them, but it definitely gave me a sense for like how an editor looks at a manuscript. I think that made my Mm. writing stronger. Yeah. You kind of realize what's going to be important and yeah, exactly. So does having this other career basically of a writer while you're also doing your postdoc work, does one of them help the other as far as just maybe I'm just picturing like maybe something goes poorly with research one day, then do you write more that day or is there anything where they inform each other at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly like even scientists need to be good writers. So even just like the mechanics of being able to write well, I think have been extremely useful to me as a scientist. Maybe, I mean, scientific papers are notoriously dry and horrible to read. And I'm not not even going to argue with that. But obviously you have to write grant proposals. You have to write all these other pieces of writing. I think that's useful. I think it's really healthy to not have your whole identity be based on one job or one thing. And I think that's been, that's been really good because if, you know, something really goes wrong in the lab and I'm really frustrated and my, my boss undermines me horribly in a lab meeting or something. That's not my whole life. You know, that's not, mm-hmm. you know, that's not something that I have to sit with forever. I, I get to go into these other worlds and I get to tell these stories and that's, you know, kind of freedom that really can't be taken away from me. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that dynamic, I guess, too, that you just mentioned, because that happens to me or it has happened to me where someone will just undermine me. It's like, I know what I'm doing. I know my job. And then they just decide, I think it happened today, actually, like someone decided we didn't need to do something. And I said, we did. Now they think we do. It's like, well, I said that. Yeah. But then I had my conversation with you coming up. So I couldn't be focused on that until I brought it up now. (laughs) But exactly. Yeah. That like, there is these other, and I I think for some reason comedy had the same effect for me that Mm -hmm. like, there's this other part of, of my life that, they can't take in any in any job really i think maybe particularly academia certainly your phd supervisor and then like right now my like research mentor guy they have so much power over you right mm-hmm. like and the dynamics of work i mean yeah how many times have i seen a woman suggest something everyone ignores her and then a man says the same. i mean that's like yeah you know i know that they can't see my gestures but i'm like yeah no but it's, you know it's like, a it's a thing like we're both gesticulating with our hands like <laughs> that yeah no because it does happen and it's just kind of one of those things where you get tired of it and sometimes you're gonna say something and sometimes you're not just yeah. because you yeah. know In- energy isn't infinite and yeah i definitely definitely feel that so yeah in that, in that respect it's like you know all these creative outlets they're at least like the creation of them is, is mine you know, mm-hmm. like obviously I do want to release them into the world and I want other people to experience them and critique them and all that. But I, you know, the actual like making it that that belongs to me. Mm-hmm. So with your fiction, with your stories, do you have a way you come up with things? Do you have like a notebook where you just have all these ideas, like kind of like with jokes, like you just have all these ideas and you turn them into something or is it a bit more of kind a different of. process? Yeah, it's fine. I used to actually have a physical notebook and now I put everything on my phone. So I have these, right. all these notes tabs. And yeah, that is kind of it. But usually it starts with some kind of like seed of an idea. Sometimes I mull them over for ages and sometimes I just start writing right away and I have yet to think of any sort of reason for why, why one of those occurs versus the other. And like, and this is most of the time they're things that I like, you know, and this is, humans don't talk about this and I don't even know how to talk about this, but most of us have these like ongoing, you know, fantasies or movies in our head and like not not even sexual right just like mm-hmm. these like scenarios that we play out for ourselves and that's like a really yeah, yeah. common behavior that 
it's very personal, very intimate, and we don't really talk about it. But I think the mm. the way that I sort of work through my fiction is often in that context where even if I'm, you know, just taking a walk or doing something monotonous, cleaning the apartment, I sort of have this like, you know, this like movie playing in my head that I control, right? Yeah. And I can, you know, I can like look at a scene and be like, oh, is that right? Is that what the characters would do? Oh, okay, no, I don't think so. Here's why. Or like, is that a huh. dynamic I want? So that's very like... It's very engaging. I don't know. I find it, I've I've been like that in terms of the way that I, you know, spend my daydreaming time, for lack of a better word, for my whole life, basically. I suspect my dad is like that as well, but again, we've never spoken about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if Uh, he's, maybe he'll listen and then we'll, he'll talk to you. Yeah, maybe. This will bring you guys together on this subject. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, often it comes from that. And then, like, if I think of something I think is really good and powerful, then I put it in the notes editing in different drafts and early drafts are almost always terrible. And that's another yeah. thing is that you sort of have to like, when you write, especially in the beginning, you're not writing to write something good. You're just writing to get started. And that, that, that was like a, like a psychological shift. I think it's very liberating. You know, I think yeah. that, you know, it has helped me write much better in, in the long run. Um, yeah. When lo- you realize it doesn't have to be perfect right away. Right. Exactly. And for some reason, it may, I don't know. I came to comedy later than fiction, but that's certainly how I've interacted with like writing jokes and sets, you know, is that, it's you know i know it's going to need work in the beginning that's okay mm-hmm. yeah you need to just to get to the act of creating it you know yeah you need to say i know with a new joke it's rare that it's just gonna work completely the it, first time yeah but you need to say it to see what part worked and what part didn't or if none of it did and move on or whatever. exactly right and like it's just so i mean god there's such diversity of minds in the world right the way people mm-hmm. experience things and you know, there's definitely times when I literally don't know if something is funny or not. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or you don't even know how you're going to feel saying it. Like, oh, I don't feel great saying that. Even yeah. if it is funny, I feel gross. Yeah. So gonna, you yeah, know? for sure. Or like, ah, uh, you know, I'm going to put that in there. It probably won't get much. And that's what kills. Like, yeah. And you go, what? Why do you guys think that's funny? Yeah. Like, like what, what made that work? Like, like a punchline shouldn't be spinach, you know, or something yeah, like exactly. whatever it is. Exactly. And you fiction know. is, I think, not dissimilar. You know, that, like, there'll be a character that I write thinking, ah, oh, you know, and they'll be like, oh, that character really spoke to me. I was like, really? Didn't speak to me, but all right. So the way we experience <laughs> each other in our, each other's work and stuff is so diverse and interesting in and of itself. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I mean, just to have, like, the two sides of you, you're able to express the side with the animals and with science, especially, but then also the with the fiction writing, especially the fiction, because there's something about actually making up stories versus just talking about yourself that I think is pretty. Yeah. And they're very different, like in terms of exactly humans. So we want attention. I like it when people laugh at my jokes, you know, I'm like, haha, good job me, you know, mm-hmm. and the fiction is a very different experience. Like in some ways, like it's, yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, there's someone talking, you know, writing your ideas instead of the way you're presenting yourself. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. I thought about that way, but it's very different. Yeah. Well, and then with your comedy, I mean, just to touch on that, I think we have similar styles in the sense we both do storytelling and yeah. observational and personal yeah. narrative. And how did you start doing comedy? During my PhD, PhDs in England work a little different in the, in the UK, work different in the US. In the US, you take classes for a while. You don't do that in the UK. But there's this big move to get students um, transferable skills. So there's this mandatory number of transferable skills training hours you need. I know this mm-hmm. sounds like a diversion, but I swear it's relevant. Because <laughs> the last year, my P- I just sort of neglected that. Like, not entirely, but, like, 
you know, more than I should. And I, you're supposed to do them all in your first two or three years. So I, I needed to find a certain number, like a, a certain number of seminars that fit into my experimental schedule. And uh, there was this one I needed, like I, you know, one of them that I had to have, I had two choices that fit with my experiment that I was working on. And one was like advanced theoretical biostatistics, which I had already taken a pretty rigorous undergraduate course, theoretical statistics. And then the other was stand-up comedy for scientists. It's so, hot at Cambridge. Hot at Cambridge. So guess which one I picked? So I, I, I went to that and kind of having this vague thought that I'd seen science comedy before. It's, I think, actually a really powerful outreach tool when it's done well and works. And I, I, I've always liked, you know, kind of being funny. I liked being the funny one, you know, group settings and whatever. So I thought, oh, I'll mm-hmm. go give it a go. There was this this group that ran it. Honestly, I think it's a great, because it seems so stupid when I say it, but I think actually it was wonderful because even the, the, the people who never went on to do stand-up comedy it's just so good for your public speaking and engaging. Yeah, sure. I think, I think it was legitimately a very useful exercise, even though it sounds silly. And um, the people running it ran the stand-up comedy group out of Cambridge called The Variables. I did a show with them and, and, and had a great time. And I met friends doing it, you know, so. Yeah. You go and I saw my, my earliest sets were actually about my fish and, you know, about the science and stuff and about doing field work. And, you know, it was really fun. It was such a fun group of people that did it. And honestly, it's funny because I remember be, like when I moved to London, I decided to do like normal, and I'm doing sarcastic air quotes now, normal stand-up. <laughs> and the reason I, I was compelled to do that is because I had written this set to do with my, the science group, and they wouldn't let me do it. And that was uh, about like my own being biracial, my own background, and they just they didn't want anything controversial at all. So right. I decided to do normal stand-up. And I was so intimidated because I'm like, oh my God, you know, all the people doing normal stand-up in London are going to be so much better than scientists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On the open mic level, they are not. <laughs> um, no. I actually think that like the science, the science comedians were great. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, even the, even now thinking about it, I think they were like, legitimately very funny. And there was more quality control and stuff for that, obviously, than there was like an open mic night. But yes, that's how I got started, and I did that. You know, you, not even that often. You know, maybe like three or four shows a year. It's good fun. And then in London, I decided to to go at it more seriously, especially because I was like an employee postdoc in London. I was hired to work on a project. So I wanted to do a good job, but I wasn't personally invested in it. And I was like, well, working in nine to five, let's actually, let's clock out at five and go give this comedy thing a go. I like how your science led you to that too. Yeah, right? That's <laughs> a typical route to stand-up comedy. A question I like to ask everybody before I get to my end questions, which are called the fun five, is do you have any advice or mantra that you want to share that maybe has been helpful to you? I hate giving this as advice, but um, especially, and I see this all the time in terms of the students I teach. And so my, this is another random thing. So PhDs in England are shorter than the ones in the the U.S. You have a maximum of four years. It's a hard cap. And it's really common to only get three years of funding. And that's what happened to me. Mm. So I took the the full four years, but I only had three years of funding. So I funded the last year of my PhD by working as a tutor. I Mm. liked teaching a lot. I did a lot of online tutoring. Because I was, you know, I was foreign, right? So I couldn't actually freelance. So I did it in the States where I was a citizen. I've kept that up as a good side gig, you know, as a way, especially during the pandemic of staying busy. London is very expensive and post-tax salaries are not very high. So, yeah, that sort of let me still, you know, do, go out and do nice things. I see all the time that on average, my, my, my mm-hmm. female students are stronger and more competent than my male ones, but much less confident. And I see that in the students that I teach, even like in the higher education and I hate telling women to be resilient because I think that's shitty. But I think mm-hmm. whatever extent I could, you know, specifically tell young women that the way you're treated does not reflect on you 
reflects on the person doing that. Mm-hmm. Like in professional context, personal context, you have this kind of cliched advice, but it's really stuck with me. The more students I work with, some of my well, my women students, I'm not even sure they need a tutor. Sometimes I just think they need like a self-esteem coach. Yeah. Because some of them are extraordinary, you know, and huh. they don't see it at all. Yeah. No, I think that's not that cliche. I think it's true. And it's something that I do some mentoring of different people. And a big thing is usually just them not having confidence versus capability. It's yeah. It's like shocking yeah. almost. And like, I see it in, you know, even like in, Myself, like I, I try to be more confident now, but like, especially as it's so much easier as a woman to be self-deprecating. People like me more when I'm self-deprecating, you know, like especially yeah. men, you know, but, and that's like a really hideous thing that like, obviously I don't know how to address the systemic nature of that, but yeah. Yeah. No, well, that's good advice. Okay, cool. Well, now the fun five. So what is the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Oh man, this is a little embarrassing. I still have <laughs> this is this is real life. I still have an old t shirt from when I played youth basketball when I was ten years old. Oh my gosh. And why do I still have I only wear it as PJs. I don't leave the house. Why do I still have that? I don't know. I mean, I went through a phase when I was very young where I was convinced I was gonna become a professional basketball player. And I was like I was one of these kids that had a really early growth spurt. Like at one point, the growth chart predicted I would be seven feet tall. I know, right? <laughs> and it's funny because my dad's a really tall guy, but my mom's really short and her jeans kicked in. And now I'm like a very like normal, like five, seven, you know, but I was convinced I was going to become a professional basketball. I was determined that I was going to turn the WNBA into as big a deal as the NBA, which it's embarrassing to say out loud now, but I, I believed that at like age eight. And I took, I, went, I did youth basketball when I was like nine and 10 and, you know, I was pretty good then. Give it again. I was like literally like a foot taller than the other kids. I mean, and like yeah, I have yeah. mildly disproportionately long arms. I was like an orangutan on the court and these poor little normal <laughs> kids. I remember realizing later on once the other kids caught up to me that I wasn't actually that good at basketball. But, you know, for those two years, I was just tall and I was like, I'm going to do it. And then I had this catastrophic ankle injury when I was 10 and that ended my basketball career. Oh. I mean, eventually my lack of talent would have ended my basketball career. <laughs> But it felt like that's what ended it when I was 10. So maybe it's just some leftover fondness for that other life. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. So this one is a pandemic question, but we're not out of it yet. So it's going to stay. If every day was really Groundhog's Day, Mm -hmm. like the the movie, Mm -hmm. what song would you have your alarm clock set to play every morning? I actually have my alarm set to a song and I've, it's been waking me up for several years now. And I'd probably oh. stick with that one. It's, um, I, I can't, I do like it a lot. It's called Beachcomber by Real Estate. I actually originally, I heard it like in the, in like the background of like a TV show and there was just something about it where I looked it up and I, I've huh. been through periods where I'm really obsessed with it. And even like, I, there's, there's something like maybe musically about it where like, <laughs> like I, 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 in a different life, I, I play the piano a lot. And I still dabble mm. every once in a while. And I think about that, like, music structure. And there's just something about the way it's structured that, like, is very, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's easy to kind of, I make up sometimes my own little lyrics to it. And I, I sing them to the fish and the turtle. And I have a cat now. And, then, yeah, I think I would probably stick with that one. Cool. All right. Yeah, I, I'm going to check it out for sure. I have a Spotify playlist, so nice. it'll get added there. Cool. Yeah. All right. Coffee or tea or neither? Ooh. So, it's probably both. Like, 
I do I do like my coffee a lot. England is weird with coffee. Have you experienced that? Well, just what people like tea. Oh they yeah. Like, but they like really dark coffee yeah. too, in my opinion. They yeah, like, like they're European influenced. Yes. So it's like here's your like really intense espresso that takes three and a half hours to make and it costs mm-hmm. like a million dollars. Or here's your shitty instant coffee. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I do quite like coffee and I've gotten really into making cold brew. That's been one of my Oh, my friend just got a he got a cold brew and like I think he had too much a couple of days because it's really easy just to I didn't yeah. I remember once I like I was getting like palpitations and I was like, Oh Yeah, that's what he said yeah, too. It's I got really excited about his palpitations just now, but yeah. Yeah, no, but like it's it's wild. It is it is because it's a concentrate and you have to like dilute it around. Okay. But yes, yeah, so, but I also really like tea. You know, like mm-hmm. my mom is Indian, I grew up with chai and stuff and Oh nice. I can't get chai lattes out and about because they're all bullshit. I feel like I've sworn a lot of this, I'm sorry. It's fine, don't worry. They're all nonsense. And I, but like, even just like, uh, I can get, I, I can get into like the, you know, like different green teas and white tea and it's like a whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually really like them both, but I think they serve different. Well, I don't know. Cause I mean, getting a coffee is such a classic social activity, isn't it? Yeah. And like, and for some reason getting, getting a tea weirdly, maybe it's because I lived in England so long. It almost feels more intimate. Like you have a tea in someone's home you know, they make you a tea. Mm-hmm. Whereas coffee, you, you get out in a cafe. Yeah, that's true. Actually. So I, like, I don't know yeah. what to make of that, but yeah. So both. Cool. And can you think of a time you laughed so hard you cried and couldn't stop or just something that kind of makes you lose it when it happens? Yeah. Okay. So this is, re- this is somewhat recent. My dad and I, uh, and my, my parents and I were visiting with a, one of my cousins who's in the Air Force and he was telling us Air Force stories. And he was telling us that, I forget where it was. It was somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, maybe Oh, I'm forgetting that. It was a specific, uh, specific country there. And they actually bring out these dogs to sniff out for snakes, right? And <laughs> I misheard it. I think I misheard it that I thought they brought on snakes on because he also talked about how they sniff for drugs. Like, they brought snakes on to, to sniff for drugs. <laughs> and my dad and I, I don't know, we just worked each other up into this like conniption because it was like, well, how do you put a snake in a harness? Like, obviously, it's going to like slither right up. And my dad did, the, did the, the facial expression of like a snake like with its tongue flicking out, like trying to find drugs. And we were beside it. <laughs> it's so bizarre to it's envision. Just, right? And my mom's there like, all right, I guess, you know. That's good. I feel like your dad's really, we've got, done a good shout to your parents in this podcast. Yeah. Like your dad specifically, he might have even written about the snake, the drug stumping <laughs> snakes now. We don't know. We don't know. You yeah. Know? Who knows? Yeah. No, <laughs> my dad and I, we can sometimes vibe in this very specific way where we just like get yeah. inconsolably, you know, hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. All right. So the last one, who inspires you right now? That's an interesting one. Who inspires me right now? Pandemic has been interesting, right? Because obviously like it's been really isolating and my best friend has mm-hmm. been a turtle for a long period of time. I think I earlier yeah. said that I would take a bullet for the turtle and I stand <laughs> by that. But in a weird way, I think it's also kind of like brought me closer to the people I love and that we're all sort of isolated. There's a lot of these virtual interactions, which obviously aren't as satisfying as real life ones because, you know, we did not evolve. To like a yeah, yeah. So I feel like I've drawn a lot of inspiration from various friends of mine and how they're they're handling things. So I've got, so the, the first year of my PhD, my, my best friend was a master's student and then she left me and I don't make friends with master's students. But there was, there was a couple, there's three of us, there's me and two master's students and we, we hung out all the time. And um, they're not PhD students at, the North, at North Carolina, at Chapel Hill. Actually, one of them just finished her PhD. But anyway, they they were so 
passionate and constructive about trying to affect change over the last like couple of years with the, mm. obviously this, you know, political nightmare and the disaster of our lack of national empathy in the States and mm-hmm. the way that they coordinated that so unselfishly, I thought was really wonderful. And like my best friend from, from college moved to Washington state and just the way that like the attitude that she's managed to like truly assimilate about dealing with some of the things that we've all been through, they've helped me get through it, you know? And I mm. feel like those sorts of things of just seeing all the admirable, wonderful things about the people I already knew and loved and really appreciating that, I think has been a really powerful part of this. Like my sisters, you know, like even I feel like I've gotten to know facets of them that are just really, yeah, yeah I didn't, I mean, it's not that I, I just never appreciated how, how wonderful they were. So I think that's all been, that's all been eye opening. Oh, that's great. That's really nice. Yeah. Thanks. I feel very no, lucky. And I, yeah, I know what you mean, though. I have some friends who I've gotten closer to and some who are just gone, you know, and yeah. it, it is it kind of, I don't know, I learned to let go, though, yeah. more than I would have if it wasn't this thing, because it was so obvious, right? Yeah. Like, it's obvious where we stand, so Exactly, you, yeah. There's no you know? hiding. Yeah, it's better to know. And it's weird, yeah, because, and that's a hard part of growing up and becoming an adult, you know, is that's better to know hurtful things a lot of the times than not. Um, like yeah. life is richer when you can react and adjust your life accordingly, even though it's more painful at first. Yep. But yeah, it's been definitely, the pandemic still looms large. I mean, I'm, I'm very privileged and lucky and fully vaccinated and a few of friends now, not to brag, but I still spend a lot of time with my turtle who is, like I said, just 15 out of 10 turtle. I just, yeah. I did start an existential web comedy about my turtle. Oh, yeah. So that's, well, that's my next question, too. So that's a good segue. So if people want to find you and if they want to find this web comedy, and I'll have links on the site and in show notes, but where should they go? I, so I have a YouTube channel. So I have some stand up stuff on there. And um, my, yeah, two episodes of my existential turtle web comedy, The Pinnacle of Turtality. So cool. So your YouTube channel, which I'll link, and then you're on what Insta? Well, I know, I know where you are, just I know you, but like for other Yeah. People. So I'm on Instagram, Reva J. Riley, and same with Twitter. I also have a Facebook. I'm not, I don't know. I feel old. I feel like I should know social media better. Because I have a Facebook as well, but that does not seem like the way to, you can I feel like Facebook, Facebook's like, it be, it's become this thing where I know in comedy you have to add people or even on you this. You do, yeah. I don't really want to because it's like, that's where my friends were before. Exactly. So, yeah. Like I always thought like Twitter and Instagram were for like networking and Facebook was for, but it seems like there's a lot of blurred lines there. Yeah. So. Yeah, but yeah, I'm so. on Facebook as well. Okay, cool. All right, well, Riva, thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. To this is awesome. With you. Thank you for having me. It's great to catch yeah. up too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieAsaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe M A F F I A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.